That's it uh, for announcements. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Let's pray together. Father, it's great to be in your presence, to be able to study your word, to worship. We thank you, Jesus, that you conquered sin and the grave, that you've risen from the dead, that we too will rise in similar fashion, that this body is going to be traded in for a much greater version, for a glorified version. So we pray that we would be motivated, that we would be comforted, that we would be challenged this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. Christ made this amazing, powerful statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved it. In John chapter 11, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, showing that he really does have power over the grave. Lazarus, Mary, Martha were close friends of Jesus. Lazarus gets sick. They send word to Jesus. Jesus does an amazing thing is he delays. He doesn't come to them right away and actually waits for Lazarus to pass away. So his glory could be sheen. So it could be declared that he has power over the grave. I wonder how Lazarus felt as his name was called Lazarus. And he comes forth from the grave in his mummy grave clothes. Lazarus is probably going, bummer, I'm going to have to go through death a second time. I know what it's like and now I'm going to have to go through it a second time. Jesus predicted his own death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, that he would rise again three days later. Our faith really does hinge on the resurrection of Christ. It proves who Jesus is. It's the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures. Because Christ is risen, we too have the hope that we're going to rise in everlasting life. There was those in the Corinthian church that were beginning to believe that Christians would not have everlasting life that they would not receive glorified bodies, that this life was all that there is. So they believed in Christ, but yet they weren't believing that there was eternal life. And that's why Paul writes uh, this chapter. It's a really important thing for him to be able to clear up. So join me in verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? This is a little bit of an obscure verse, and there's some that have used this verse to adopt a practice for actually doing baptismal services for those that have died and passed away. And nowhere do we see in this verse that that's what Paul is instructing. What Paul is pointing out is there was a pagan practice to baptize for the dead. The pagans believed in life after death, so they would baptize for for the dead. And Paul's point is, if the pagans believe, unbelievers believe in life after death, how much more so would we trust and believe in life after death? But it's a total abuse to start some kind of practice of baptizing for uh, the dead. In verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? So the resurrection is motivation. The fact that Christ is risen and we too are going to rise as believers, Paul says, I'm willing to put my life into jeopardy every hour. I'm willing to sacrifice comfort and security because I know that there is eternal life, that I'm going to be raised to 
everlasting life. And I'm going to see the Lord, that there's a reward for serving the Lord. We, we look at Christ's life, and Christ didn't choose the easy road. He chose to lay aside comfort. He chose to leave heaven and come and suffer in this life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul did the same thing. He puts his life in jeopardy for the cause of the gospel. Paul could have chosen an easier road. Paul could have chosen to not go out and church plant. Paul could have chose to to not pastor. And because he would go into these dark areas, he was persecuted. He was imprisoned. He was stoned to the point of death. And he says, it's worth it. I'm motivated because of the resurrection. And in our lives, sometimes it's easy for us to get really attached to our comfort and our securities. Like there's a part of me that wants to sacrifice comfort for the cause of the kingdom, but then there's also a part of me that likes to be comfortable. So what the resurrection means in our lives when we really get a vision of eternity is saying, man, I'm willing to lay down some comfort. I'm willing to take a tougher road because I want to have an eternal impact. Because some will be raised to everlasting life, but some will be raised to everlasting condemnation. And it matters how we live. So Paul draws on that in this section. And he's pointing out because of the resurrection, he's willing to suffer. And if there's no resurrection, then what's the point of of suffering for the cause of Christ. In verse 31, I affirm by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. So Paul gives us an idea of the need to die every day. Why is that? Because Jesus encouraged us to daily take up our cross and follow Christ. Our flesh, our sin, is really alive and well, isn't it? It needs to be crucified every day. We need to be reminded, hey, Eric, you're not in charge. You need to die daily. You need to surrender yourself to the cause of Christ. And Paul says that he was willing to do this. He was, he was willing to die daily. Can't imagine paying the ultimate price for your faith and being martyred. But also, too, there's something to be said of a life of surrendering to Christ. A martyr is that one moment in time, but then a life of saying, I'm surrendered to Jesus and I'm going to die daily. Now, that may not seem too attractive. Die every day, the Christian life. But Jesus says this is where we find the Christian life. This is where we find the abundant life. If we seek to save our life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life for Christ's sake, we're going to find it. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, it's a more difficult road, but it's more worthwhile as we surrender to the Lord. Selfishness really leads to destruction and despair. But surrender to Christ, it leads to life. Isn't there a comfort to know I'm the slave of Christ? I belong to Christ. I'm going the direction that Christ has called me to, to go. Verse 32 If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Two main thoughts on this. What are the beasts in Ephesus? It could have been that Paul was placed into the Roman arena, into the Colosseum. Ephesus, a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the ruins are there. It was a huge Roman city. No doubt there would have been a Colosseum where the Romans would put people into the Colosseum to be tortured, and Paul may have been part of that. Also, Paul may have been referring to the beast-like people that came against him in Ephesus. We know he got persecuted in Ephesus. Either way, Paul's saying, what advantage would it be to me to suffer in this way if there was no resurrection of believers? 
if there was no eternal reward and eternal life. We go on to continue in verse 32. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So if there is no resurrection, then we should adopt this mindset that we should live for pleasure. Hedonism. To say, I'm just going to indulge myself that this life is all about eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's how important the resurrection is. But if the resurrection is true, then sacrifice is worth it. I want to encourage you because I know that there's some of you where you have sacrificed for the cause of Christ. You've made a stand in your family and experienced some hardships. You've chosen to sacrifice time and treasure and talents. You said, I want to impact eternity. I want to love the lost. I want to love believers. And sometimes in the back of your mind, there's this question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And what Paul is declaring to you based on eternity, it's worth it. We may not see the fruit or the reward in this life, but it's worth it in eternal life. The fact that you've taken a stand at work, that's not the easy thing to do. But those that work with you know that you're a child of God. You've continued to walk in a difficult marriage because of your love for the Lord. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. It's exactly what God has designed and he's planned for us. And so stay faithful in the things that the Lord has has called you to. In verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This is all based around the resurrection. This is all based on the fact that believers are going to be resurrected to eternal life. It's our motivation. It, It matters how we live our lives. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Have you ever looked in your life and gone, who's my closest friends? And how do those confidants influence my life? One of the things that we share with our kids is the most important, one of the most important decisions that they're going to make in their life is who they allow to be their best friends. Have you ever watched someone's life where they once loved the Lord and were committed to the Lord and they drift away? And you ask yourself, where are their influences? Like, where are they getting this information? What are they feeding on and what is fueling them? And you see that there's been a shift in their closest friends. Don't get me wrong. We're to have friends that are unbelievers. We studied Zacchaeus on Friday and Saturday night last week. Jesus was the friend of sinners. But when it comes to your closest friends, this is absolutely true that evil company corrupts good habits. You want to have close friends that love the Lord. We look at Daniel's life, and Daniel wasn't alone. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four men that banded together as captives in Babylon. They sharpened each other. They challenged each other, and we all need that in our lives. We need fellowship. This is an important time to press into relationship with believers. Satan wants to isolate us and isolate our our culture, but God wants us to be brought together. As I've been watching this whole pandemic with the COVID virus, one of the hopes that I was having that would come out of it is that we would value face-to-face time with people even more. That as we've been isolated and, and quarantined, but I think that there's a potential where it could go the other way. I was already concerned prior to this that our culture was too isolated. We're probably the most isolated culture on, on the planet. 
And if we're not careful, even after COVID is over, that we could find ourselves more isolated than ever because the tech has even gotten better. Now you can work from home, right? You can go to the doctor from home. Your kids can go to school from home. You can go to church from home. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And in some ways, it's really nice, right? Our daughter, she's going into her freshman year of high school, one of our daughters, and they had the initial school meeting that you were supposed to go to. Well, it was on Zoom. And I got to tell you, I, I loved it because I went down into my basement Amber and I, and we attended this meeting instead of driving 20 minutes over to the school and 20 minutes back. But what did I miss? Well, I didn't talk to the principal in person. I didn't meet the other parents in person. We all did Zoom, and I'm always tempted in the Zoom call just to goof off, you know, like just start picking your nose and seeing if anybody's going to call you out on it. But Amber was joining me on the Zoom call, so I, I couldn't do that, right? But there's something that we miss, Right? There, there's something that we miss if, if we're not around people. And what this encouragement is, based on eternity, you want to make sure to surround yourself with your closest friends, with those that love the Lord and those that serve the Lord. Young people, this is the most important thing. Not the most important thing, but one of the, the most important things of, of who you're going to surround yourself with because they're going to influence you in a really powerful way. In verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul's saying, Church of Corinth, awake to righteousness. Christ is returning. There's resurrection to eternal life, to eternal condemnation. Be alive to living for the Lord. Don't, don't sin. Because there's people that don't know the Lord. There's people that need the light of God's love to shine in their lives. Here comes the question that the church of Corinth is asking. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? This is a question we've probably wrestled with and asked. Okay, if believers are going to be resurrected unto eternal life, if if this body is going to be changed, transformed into a glorified eternal body, well, how's that going to happen? One question that I've gotten a lot over the years is, is it okay for there to be cremation, right? Because of the resurrection unto eternal life. If you're cremated, does God still have the ability to raise you up to eternal life? And my answer is yes. It's the same process that if you were to be buried in the ground, you're going to decompose, but it happens much quicker. And this is the amazing work of God's creative power that he has the ability to take our buried bodies, our cremated bodies, and raise us unto eternal life. So Paul's going to dive into this question about what's the glorified body? How does that process take place? Verse 36, he says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. We have to die first. This body has to die in order for us to receive the glorified body. And what you sow... You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, as to each seed its own. The resurrection's like a seed, like a seed. If you've ever planted a garden, it's an amazing illustration of the resurrection. You have a seed. Let's just take a squash zucchini seed. And it's a decent size seed, but it still fits just right in the palm of your hands. But as seeds go, it's a fairly good size, but it's pretty plain. No color, just 
ugly brown, you put that into the ground, and it doesn't take a lot of squash or zucchini seeds to grow the plant. In a pretty large bed, you can put five or six of these seeds, and you will have more zucchini than you want to eat. And at that point, you pawn it off on your neighbors and your friends. And they act excited, but they're like, I don't know what to do with this huge zucchini, right? This plant comes from this small seed. It's this jungle-like plant that's so hardy. And then here comes the produce, the zucchini and the squash. It's an amazing transformation. It's, a, it's an amazing resurrection. Even taking some grass seeds, some Kentucky bluegrass, and you look at that seed, it's so small and it's so tiny. You bury it in the ground and you water it and pray for it and water it and pray for it, especially here in Colorado. And then eventually here comes these little hairs. And before you know it, you've got Kentucky bluegrass. It's so incredibly beautiful. This little seed is transformed into this beautiful grass. And in our body, I, I hate to tell you this, but right now we're in the ugly seed stage. And there's some glory to this ugly seed stage. It's, it's not all bad, but it's nothing compared to what it's going to be. There's an amazing graduation that awaits us. In verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. So as we look at creation, there's different kinds of bodies. There's the human body. There's bodies of animals and fish and, and birds. They all have a different body. Paul uses this to point out the difference between the earthly and the heavenly body. There are also celestial bodies and there's telestial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Celestial being the heavenly body, terrestrial, the earthly body. They both have their place. They're, they're both glorious, but the heavenly body is more glorious. Verse 41, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. As we look in the sky, as we look in the firmament, lots of stars, but some of the stars are more glorious than others. All glorious, but some have a greater glory. And that points out to, yeah, the earthly body is glorious. When we look at this physical body that God has given to us, it's amazing. It's masterful engineering. But the heavenly body is going to even be more glorious, the glorified body. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. This body is going to be put into the ground in corruption. But yet, it's raised in incorruptible. To me, this is an amazing display of the gospel and redemption. The reason that we die is because of sin, and sin takes its toll on us, and we live in a fallen and sinful world, and that takes its toll on us and takes a toll on all of creation. This body just begins to wear out and break down, and eventually it dies. It's corruptible, but yet Jesus, because he came and he died and he rose again, for those that believe, he has the power to take this body that's now decomposed, that's rotted away, and raise us up and give us a new body, a new version, a glorified body. See, it's one thing to produce wonderful things from the very beginning. I'm, Genesis chapter 1 is amazing of God's power where he speaks all things into existence. He creates all things. 
But it's another thing of God and his grace and redemption that he can take something broken, take something that's messed up with sin, and turn it into something that's beautiful and amazing and glorified. No doubt, you know, brand new vehicles, a 2021 brand new Chevy pickup truck, there's, there's a glory to that. But isn't there even a greater glory when someone has taken an old truck, a 1957 Chevy pickup truck, maybe it was sitting in someone's yard and rusting away, and with love and care they've restored it? I would go, man, there's a beauty there that that new one can't even begin to touch. And the glory of the gospel, that God would take these physical bodies that are corruptible and raise us up incorruptible. Verse 43 It's sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and raised in power. This is really comforting to me because when we look at the aging process, as we get older, if the Lord allows us to live into our elderly years, our bodies get to a place of dishonor and weakness. A friend of mine passed away a couple weeks ago, Gene Rodine. He was 91 years old. And thankfully, I got to visit him a couple days before he passed. And his body was wore out, as you can imagine, at 91 years old. Just completely wore out. And there was dishonor in his physical body. There was weakness there in his his physical body. But his spirit was alive and his spirit was strong with the Lord. And he was expressing, I just keep crying out to God, what's taking you so long? I'm ready. I'm ready to, to go home to be with the Lord. And a lot of us, we really fear this body breaking down. We really fear those elderly years or fear any point in our lives to to lose our health. But that's going to happen. This body is going to break. This body is going to experience dishonor. This body is going to experience weakness. But the great thing is, is God is greater. And when this body is finally raised, laid to rest, it's ultimately going to lead to Christ sounding this last trumpet, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and receive their glorified bodies. And the reason that that's a comfort to me is when my body's breaking down, I go, okay, Lord, I'm just closer to eternity. I'm closer to being home with the Lord. Your redemption is even greater than the decay that I'm experiencing in our bodies. We really hate this in our culture, that we look in the mirror, and the mirror reminds us that we're dying. We look at pictures from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. We're not what we were 20 years ago, but we should be encouraged. It just means this seed's wearing out. It just means this seed is, is closer to graduating, closer to forever being with the Lord. In verse 44, it, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So this is our natural body, but it's going to be sown and raised into a spiritual body. The heavenly glorified body is going to be dominated by the spirit to the point where the scripture calls it a spiritual body. But don't misunderstand, we will have a physical glorified body just dominated by the spirit. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, his body was physical. They touched Christ. He ate food. And we too are going to have a a physical body that's dominated by the spirit. But this body is a natural body. Verse 45, And so it is written, The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Paul likes to contrast the first Adam in the garden with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. 
And we're impacted by the first Adam. Because Adam sinned, we too sin. We have sinful natures. But we're also impacted in a greater way by the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who in the Garden of Gethsemane surrendered to die for our sins. And Jesus is the life-giving spirit. Jesus has the power to give life. As we believe in him, his death and resurrection, in who he is, he's able to grant life. He's able to grant eternal life. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. We can't get the glorified body until this natural body wears out. Verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we bear the image of the first Adam through sin. That's marked us and changed us. But even more so, we're going to bear the image of the heavenly man. We're going to be raised unto eternal life. Can you guys imagine this? This is going to be crazy. Get a glorified body that's like Christ. That doesn't know sin, doesn't know destruction that's able to behold God in a glorified state, in a perfected state. Verse 50, And this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So we can't enter into God's presence in this place of corruption, in this this body of sin. That's why verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. This word mystery, it speaks of something that was previously unknown that will be revealed. The mystery is how the dead in Christ shall be changed, how the dead in Christ shall be transformed and raised unto everlasting life. And here's the moment where that's going to take place in verse 52. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So it's at this moment when the trumpets sound, when Christ returns, when he takes up believers, the dead in Christ are going to rise and receive their glorified bodies. Paul refers to this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Have you been comforted with the second coming of Christ as things have gotten more difficult? God never promised that this life and this earth is going to last forever. There's going to be a point where God's even done with the earth and the earth is burned up in fervent heat. But Christ is going to return and the dead in Christ are going to rise first of all ages those infants who have passed away, those children who have passed away before an age of accountability, before they've had an opportunity to reject Christ. I believe God in his character takes young children home to be with the Lord because they never had an opportunity to accept or reject Christ. To the elderly, to those that died in their 40s, to a teenager that passed away of cancer, the dead in Christ are going to rise. Then those who are Believers that are alive at the time are going to be caught up to forever be with the Lord. What if that's our generation? 
I can tell you this, we're closer than any other generation, right? And Jesus told us to live our lives in expectation of his coming. But this is the moment where believers will receive the glorified body. This raises a question. Think this through with me. So what happens to believers when they die right now? Are they in some kind of weird soul sleep? No. Paul wrote and he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our last breath here on earth is followed by our first breath in heaven. So then are we up there without a glorified body? It appears to be that way, but remember, time's different in heaven. Probably much more like an eternal now. I don't think they're up there going, man, when am I going to get my glorified body? It's probably much more like, I'm home with the Lord, and bam, here's my glorified body, and here's all the believers that are joined together with the Lord for all of eternity. In verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then death shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25, verse 8, Paul quotes from. The resurrection is our final victory. There's going to be this point where the reality of sin being defeated, death being defeated, is experienced by believers. Christ rose from the dead. We know he's defeated death, but this will be the moment where death is swallowed up in victory. Death is brutal, isn't it? Death's never satisfied. It's not a respecter of persons. Death comes upon that infant. Death takes place in miscarriage. Death takes place to the teenager. Heart attacks, cancer to the elderly, and it hurts every time. No matter how many times you've been exposed to death, it's always a shock to the system when a loved one passes away. What's brutal for me as a pastor is to see parents bury their kids. It's unnatural. It's not the way things normally go, but sometimes it goes that way, where kids pass away and parents have to go through that process of burying their kids. It also breaks my heart to see young kids lose their parents, to sit with a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a 13-year-old as they're trying to process that their parent has, has passed away. And I always like to wait and watch at a graveside. Gravesides are interesting because Normally, you'll have a larger service here in the sanctuary, and then it's immediately family and friends that will go to a, a graveside. And the graveside service is much shorter. It's a small reading from Scripture, a few words of encouragement, prayer. And then the family and the friends are left there in this difficult moment that this is going to be the last time that they're going to be around and see the body of the one that, that they love. It's that final moment. They're, they're dropped in the ground. And I'll tend to back off and let family and friends have that time, but just stay back and pray and watch. And without fail, parents leave last. Parents leave last. They wait until everybody else is gone, and you usually see dad like this, and you see mom crying. And it hurts. It hurts to watch them go through that kind of grief. But I got to tell you, the grave doesn't have the final word. That moment doesn't have the final word. That child is going to be raised up into eternal life. 
that believer who's been buried is going to be raised up into eternal life. And Jesus is the lamb that was crucified upon the cross, but he was also the lion, and he roars that he is victorious over the grave. So if you have a loved one who's passed away in Christ, be encouraged this morning. They're more alive than they've ever been, and they're going to receive their glorified body. If your body is wearing out, be encouraged. <laughs> You're going to receive a, a glorified body. If you've gotten bad health news, man, I'm sorry. I know that that is extremely difficult, but be encouraged. You're going to receive a, a glorified body that's never going to struggle with sin or sickness. Death is going to be swallowed up in victory. The resurrection is our final victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The reason that death exists is because of sin. The reason that we're sinners is because of the law. The law reveals to us our sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the application. Paul gives us a takeaway. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because Christ is risen, and you too are going to rise to eternal life, then be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is it that God has called you to do and called you to be? Stay in that place. Be steadfast. Don't be moving from the things that God has called you to. Husbands and wives, God has called you into that marriage. Don't move away from it. Parents, God has called you to those children. Don't move away from it. Singles, God has called you for the time being in singlehood. Be faithful in that place. Is there a job that God has called you to and he hasn't called you out of it? Be steadfast and be immovable. This is a time for us to be steadfast in our commitment to one another as believers not just to Rocky Mountain Calvary, but to the body of Christ as a whole. Don't give up on the body of Christ. Don't be angry with other Christians. Be committed to the body of Christ. Be steadfast in that commitment. Jesus loves his church, and we're to love the body of Christ as a whole as well. I think of one of David's mighty men. I love his mighty men. They don't get near the press as David. One man was named Shammah. And the scriptures tell us that the Philistines came to attack the lentil field, the field of beans. And Shammah decided, he says, the Philistines, God's enemies, are not going to get God's beans. God's given us this, this land, and this beans belong to God's people. I'm going to hold my ground. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to be immovable. Just one guy against an army of Philistines, and it says the Lord brought about a great victory. And there's those times in our lives where we need to be steadfast and immovable, and we may feel like, I'm just guarding the beans. I'm just guarding the beans. How is this important? How does this have e eternal impact? But yet, that's where God has placed you. And you hold on to the word of God. That's our sword, and you swing it both ways and trust that the Lord is going to bring about a great victory. In this challenge of being steadfast, in this challenge of being Im immovable, then we're also challenged to abound, to abound in the work of the Lord, to take every opportunity in the work of the Lord. Because Christ is risen and we too are going to rise, and there's this promise that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God is a rewarder. <laughs> 
He tells us if we take a cup of cold water to a child, he's going to reward us. Just blessing a child with some water, let alone with cookies and cream ice cream, right? Just loving on kids and blessing kids and and doing that unto the Lord. And what we do in secret, he's going to reward us openly. We may not see the fruit in this life. Sometimes we do, but you're definitely going to see the reward in eternal life. It's not going unnoticed by the Lord. There's this obscure chapter in the law where you find each tribe offering gifts to God and the leader of their tribe is bringing their gift to the Lord and each leader brings the exact same series of gifts. It's a really long chapter. If I were writing the chapter, I would summarize it and say, all right, here's the 12 tribes. They all gave the same thing. Let's move on. But God takes each tribe, each leader, the list of what they gave. Each tribe, each leader, the list of what they gave. And what God is saying is, I noticed. (laughs) It's important to me. It didn't go unnoticed to me. And it's not going unnoticed to the Lord. So abound in the work of the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. Be faithful and be uh, steadfast. A couple of modern day's examples of this. Maybe some of these guys ring a bell for you. John MacArthur, 81 years old, still preaching and teaching. Charles Stanley, 87 years old, still pastoring. Chuck Swindoll, 85 years old, still teaching the Word of God. That's amazing. Steadfast, immovable. These guys have over 50 years of standing in the pulpit and faithfully teaching God's Word. And here they are continuing to serve the Lord. At some point in their lives, they made a decision to say, I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to be immovable. I'm going to continue to serve God. As long as God gives me breath, I'm going to be faithful to what he's asked me to do. And may God move us in the same way. I know it gets difficult. I know it's easy to want to give up, but don't give up. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord because the reward is coming. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, would you fill us with hope? Would you fill us with this reality that we too are going to rise, that Christ is risen? May it motivate us. May it motivate us to be willing to put our lives in jeopardy, to be willing to give up present comfort. May it motivate us to be awake to righteousness. We do take great comfort that we are in a seed-like state. As great as it is, that glory awaits us, that this body is going to be transformed into a resurrected body. Thank you that death doesn't have the final word, that those moments of sorrow and loss and goodbyes aren't the final moments. And we're encouraged by those that have gone before us, that they're with you. And Lord, those areas of our lives where It's easy for us to give up where we're considering not being steadfast and moving away from the things you've called us to. Jesus, with the power of your resurrection, would you be strong in our weakness and allow us to be faithful and abound in the work of the Lord. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.